Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. What happens to people when they are in a coma? Now, this is a question that doctors and researchers have long tried to figure out an answer. Is someone aware of what's happening? Do they even know that they are in a coma or is it, or is it just sleep? Well, Dr. Adrian Owen has been conducting some amazing research on this. Uh, He's the professor of cognitive neuroscience and imaging at the University of Western Ontario and author of The Gray Zone, a neuroscientist explores the border between life and death. And he joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me on. Can you tell me a bit about your research and how have you been exploring this idea? Yeah, so um, we've been looking at this for some years now. And of course, as as, as you said in your introduction, the idea is, you know, what really goes on uh, in, the, in the brains of patients who are lying comatose and seemingly completely unresponsive in a hospital bed? And that's, this may be after a traumatic brain injury or even a non-traumatic brain injury like, like a heart attack. And we use various neuroimaging techniques. The one we use most frequently is called fMRI or functional magnetic resonance imaging. Uh, and we put these patients into the scanner and we try to explore whether any of them are still able to process any information from the outside world. And what we've been able to show is that, sure enough, some of them are. Some of them are actually conscious. They're aware. They're aware of who they are, where they are, and the situation they're in. Uh, and some of them we've even been able to communicate with while they're in that situation. How? Right. <laughs> well, um, it's actually simpler than you, than you might think. I mean, the idea goes behind the, the old sort of clinical um, thought that, I mean, I'm sure everybody listening to this has seen a medical drama where a doctor will take a patient's hand and say, squeeze my hand if you can hear me. And if the patient squeezes the doctor's hand, then the doctor knows that the patient is aware because they are responsive. They've responded to a request to make an action. Now, we know our patients can't respond. They're physically incapable of responding. But the question is, can they respond with their brains? So we put them into the scanner and we have them imagine certain scenarios. So for example, we might say, imagine you're playing a game of tennis. Now we know when somebody thinks about standing on a tennis court and waving their arms around and running vigorously, a certain part of the brain will activate, known as the uh, premotor cortex. And if, if we see that response in the patient, when we say something like, imagine playing tennis, then we know that they are actually responding. Now, not with their body in the traditional way, but they're responding with their brains. And the next step is to turn that into communication. We ask patients to imagine one thing to indicate a yes and imagine something else to indicate a no. And as I say, we've been able to communicate with a small number of patients uh, using that technique. Okay, so then, Dr. Ron, if that's the case, then, like, if some patients in a coma can wake up, right? Is there any ever recollection of the conversations or like, why don't they remember that? That's interesting. Now, some of them actually, some of them actually do. Uh, We had a famous case here uh, in Ontario uh, of a patient who had actually, he progressed from a coma to a so-called vegetative state, which meant that he was still completely non-responsive, but he did, he did at least open his eyes. Uh, We scanned him um, and then uh, nine months later, uh, he had recovered, uh, and we brought him back to, to Weston and, and asked him if he remembered anything uh, about what had happened to him. And not only did he remember a few things, he remembered every tiny detail. I would say, well, do you, do you remember what color the, 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 uh, the um, electrodes were that we put on your head? He said, yes, they were blue. And I said, do you remember who, do you remember who did the scan? He said, yes, it was your research assistant, Steve. So he had an extremely detailed memory of everything that had gone on. Yet at the time, we and everybody else, um, all of his uh, attending physicians and his family, believed him to be uh, completely unaware. Yet we showed that not only was he aware, but he remembered the entire uh, series of events. 
Okay, so are there different types of coma? Like, can you can you say that if someone is in a coma, this would work, or does it really depend on the situation? Uh, I think every patient is every patient is completely different. Um, so, uh, I mean, some some patients uh, are in a coma because they've been in, in a traumatic brain, uh, traumatic accident. They perhaps been in a vehicle of a car that's crashed, or or somebody's. Uh, assaulted them, um, but we see a lot of non-traumatic brain injuries as well. Uh, patients who've lost oxygen to the brain, for example, because they've had a heart attack or maybe they've had a, a near-drowning incident. So there are many different reasons why somebody can end up in a coma. It does seem that this is a little bit more common in patients that have had uh, a traumatic brain injury, um, but we, we've seen it in, in, in all sorts of in all sorts of patients. It's not something that we can predict in advance. And that's why we've really been advocating that this sort of brain imaging really should become standard of care for many of these patients. Because honestly, at the bedside, you really can't tell who is going to have some re residual function and even even awareness and, and, and who isn't. Right. So, but this, we're talking about a response in the brain. Are we assuming communication from that, Dr. Owen? Because a response is not the same as actually having a two-way communication. Well, let me give you an example. I mean, if I were to hold your hand and I said, well, you know, squeeze my left hand for a yes and squeeze my right hand for a no. And I said, well, you know, is my name Adrian Owen? And you, you squeeze my left hand, that's you signaling a yes. Now, obviously, we're not having a, a two-way communication, but we've come up with a simple way of, of being able to communicate with one another. I ask you questions, you squeeze one hand for yes, one hand for no. Essentially, what we're doing with the brain in the brain imaging is exactly the same. We say, imagine one thing for a yes and one thing for a no. And of course, there are many checks and balances. This is something we have to replicate many times. We have to make absolutely sure we're we're, we're completely confident that the, the message is coming through uh, loud and clear. And it isn't something that happens in every patient. So that it's actually fairly rare. But when it does happen, yes. It is a form of communication, um, and uh, you know that if you if you accept that you can communicate by squeezing your hands, then I think you have to accept you can communicate by changing the pattern of activity in your brain. Okay, so when you say it doesn't happen for every coma patient, is there a way to determine like which ones this might work for, which ones this might not work for? There isn't a way of determining that in advance, but one really important thing that I haven't said yet is that this does relate to the chances of recovery. So the better, uh, the patients who are able to do these mental feats, if you like, the patients who seem to have some residual brain function, some residual awareness, those are the patients who are most likely to go on to have some level of recovery. So this is why it's extremely important that we do this. Beyond finding a patient being aware and maybe communicating with them, it's really trying to, to predict who is most likely to recover? Because of course, then we can we can really help those people. Okay, so then where do you take? Where's the next step then for your research? Well, historically, I mean, we've, we've been doing this work for about uh, almost twenty years now, and mostly it, it, it's up until recently it's been in so-called long-term or chronic patients, patients who are in a vegetative state or a minimally conscious state. But most recently, we've moved into the ICU to start looking at patients in the first few days after a brain injury. That's patients who are, are comatose. And we're having tremendous success with um, establishing that some of these patients aren't what they appear to be. Some of them can still hear. Some of them can still understand spoken language. Some of them can even, uh, some of them are actually completely aware of everything going on around them. It's a small minority. It's probably between 15 and 20% of the patients that we see. But we are developing new tools using things like machine learning that everybody's talking about at the moment to try and use this information to augment the, the doctor's opinions, the, the, the predictions that the doctors can make about whether a patient is going to live or, or, or not survive through a, a serious brain injury in the ICU. And this is, you know, as I say, this is tremendously important because there are many, many patients die in our ICUs and many of them die because they are withdrawn from life-sustaining measures. And uh, most people understand why that happens and why that's necessary and why it's the case. But the possibility is that some of those patients maybe should be given a little bit more time uh, before that decision is made. And I think that's what we're, that's, it's those patients that we're really trying to identify. All right, well, thank you so much for talking to us about it today.
My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So interesting. That's Dr. Adrian Owen, Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience and Imaging at the University of Western Ontario, author of The Grey Zone, A Neuroscientist Explores the Border Between Life and Death. What cool work he is doing. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm great. Thank you very much. Yeah, everything uh, hanging in there. I had a dear friend, uh, Bruce Hutchison, many, many years, lived till he was 91, still writing for the paper. And when people asked him how he was, his standard answer was very well, considering the alternatives. <laughs> <laughs> That is an excellent answer, by the way. Excellent. Well, let's update people on a story that we have been talking about. Uh, It sounds like Nathan Cullen, the lands minister for BC, is having a bit of a change of heart here. Yeah, I think he's having some second thoughts. So on Tuesday, when you talked to him, he said, you know, um, I'm really keen to talk about these changes in the Land Act. Now, where do people get the idea the government's trying to hide something here? And he said, I am enthusiastic about it. And, uh, you know, we want public consultation on these changes and everything is hunky-dory. Well, uh, I talked to him on Wednesday. His office said, would I like to talk to the minister for a follow-up? I said, sure. They always maybe had something else to say. Turns out he did. The first thing Colin said to me was, you know what? I wish I'd been more proactive in involving the public. Like, we're going to have a public consultation on this ambitious plan to change the management of Crown land, and we're asking the public for feedback, but we didn't tell the public we were going to do that. So, yeah, he sort of wishes he'd gone out and maybe put out a news release or even called a press conference and said, hey, this is a big deal and we'd like to know what you think. We're going to change the law this spring. We're going to go to a system where the 95% of the province that is crown land, that land will henceforth, if possible for that to be jointly managed on a consent basis with Indigenous nations. So it's a big change, potentially a huge change. He's got a consultation process going, but he only told the stakeholders about it. He didn't tell the public that we'd like to know what you think. Like, I mean, tell them directly. I guess he yeah. relied on the relied on the public to just sort of, you know, look around the internet on a regular basis, idly search the government website and see what's new. Well, as you know, Simi, the only reason he's out talking about it at all this week is because a bunch of news organizations, including the Vancouver Sun, I found out about this and pointed it out, and the government had to respond. Okay, and so I'm curious as to why this is happening now. Maybe he's been listening to the criticism, but I also think the one of the most powerful arguments in this was the people who are going to get blamed here are the Indigenous groups. Yes, and he's conceded that point. And, and look, there was a backlash, and you got feedback, I did. The Global Mail did a piece on it, Justine Hunter, and she got feedback, so we all heard about it. But look, the real problem here, and it was flagged by Adam Olson of the Greens, and he said, look, when you do something like this, it's the Indigenous people that hear about the backlash. And Colin concedes that's fair comment. He said, it's true. You know, he said, he said, if I screw up as a minister or if the government gets it wrong, well, that's fine. Blame the government. But he said, what well, unfortunately what happens is a segment of the public takes out its anger on Indigenous people. And he said, that's regrettable. He said, if there was any backlash to Indigenous nations, Indigenous leaders because of this, he takes full responsibility for it. And he said, you know, he was speaking with a, a sense of humility recognizing that, you know, there was a mistake in not properly letting the public know what was happening. But the fallout on these things descends on Indigenous people, and that is more than regrettable. That's It's hard enough to yes. move down the road to what the government is trying to do in terms of reconciling in, with Indigenous people. And he says we've got to get the process right and pretty much concedes that here they did not get it right. Okay, so what does that mean then in terms of changing the process? Well, it's interesting. He's back down there too. So when the government launched this consultation on these changes in the Land Act back at the beginning of January, 
it said the plan was to begin to, to take feedback up to the end of March, but to begin drafting the legislation in February before the feedback was in. So Collins says that's a mistake too, and they're not going to do that. They are going to wait till all the feedback is in at the end of March and then begin drafting the legislation. So that's a better process. So I said, well, there's not an awful lot of time left in the legislature session after the end of March because the new Democrat... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So we're adjourning the house early this year, it being an election year. And he said, no, I still think we can get it done this spring. So, you know, it takes a while to write legislation. If they're not going to start writing it till the 1st of April, they've got till May 16th, so like six weeks, to get the bill drafted and in the House and passed. Uh, that's a pretty tight time frame, Simi. So I don't think the controversy is over here, but I do think the minister got it right by backing off and recognizing that he'd created a big problem not least, but especially with Indigenous nations. Okay, well, that's that's good. Um, we'll see what happens here. But yeah. we still is there still an answer, though, on this whole consent issue, uh, whether or not that means like veto? Because I know people, people are very concerned about that. Well, yeah, everybody, I mean, I shouldn't say everybody, but I hear from a lot of people who say if you're going to move to management of Crown land jointly with First Nations on the basis of them consenting, to a lot of people, that implies that First Nations have a veto over what happens. The minister said, no, that's not his reading of the law and the legal situation. He says consent is not the same thing as a veto. Um, that's going to be a subject for interesting debate. Um, people out there may want to thumb through the dictionary and see and the thesaurus and see what it says. But there's a legal distinction there, according to the minister. I think one of the things he'll be doing when this legislation is introduced, is explaining or trying to explain why consent and a veto are not the same thing. What a difference a year or two makes. We are back now with Vaughn Palmer for the Vancouver Sun. We're talking about the anniversary of decriminalization because, Vaughn, some of the comments coming out of this, uh, marking this moment, seem like, well, wait a minute, that's I don't remember you saying that before. No, it's, look, the first year... The results, I'd say even the advocates would have to admit, pretty mixed, and the death toll is worse than ever. So that's a challenge. The people said we should go this way. I was struck by the reaction of Kennedy Stewart, who's mayor of Vancouver. He's written a whole book on decrim, and he pretty much takes credit for having launched this thing. So he says, um, I don't think anybody really expected decriminalization to save lives. Excuse me? That's what I thought. So, I was like, so isn't my that colleague, why you, how you got people yeah. on board was that you yeah. were saving lives? Exactly. And my colleague, Katie DeRosa, has done a piece uh, for Post Media, and she's the one who got the Kennedy Stewart quote. But she also points out that on the day decriminalization was launched last year, the NDP minister and the federal minister both called it bold action to save lives. That's how they got the public lining up behind this experiment. It was going to save lives. Well, the, the death toll is worse than ever. So I think that's the real problem out there for advocates is they're having to shift their ground and say, well, no, it wasn't really about saving lives because it didn't. It was about reducing the stigma of open drug use and reducing the stigma of taking drugs and being an addict. Well, that's going to be a harder sell with the public, especially now that the courts have stood in the way of uh, Premier David Eby's well-intentioned effort, in my view, to try to restrict open drug use because of the backlash it's creating in communities. This is, this is a very hard sell with the public. And the courts 
And the advocates are not making it any easier by their total inflexibility on the efforts by a government that wanted decriminalization, Simi, I think with the best of intentions, a government that has tried to bring the public along and is finding it harder than ever. But the claim that, oh, we never said it was going to save lives, like that just isn't borne out by the record at all. It's right there in our archives and our files, radio, TV, and print. We know what they said when they launched it. That's why they did it. And now they're having to scramble to explain why it didn't happen, saving lives. Yeah. And when you think about how quickly people did and were brought along on an issue that five years ago, people would have said, no way, you can't make this happen. Saving lives was really the only reason why so many people signed up for this and are willing to even think about it. Yeah. You know, Stuart's book is interesting, right? I mean, he does give a history of this and the city of Vancouver launched it and then the province took it over. And he's quite clear that Justin Trudeau originally opposed this and uh, Patty Haidu, his minister, came around on it. And John Horgan originally opposed this and he came around on it. I mean, it was a tough selling job. But of course, when you hit the first anniversary and the numbers, the death toll is so bad, people are going to go back and look and see what they said at the beginning and what went wrong. So some of the advocates have said, well, what went wrong was you were also supposed to provide treatment and recovery services, and you're not doing that. And some people say, well, you should provide more safe supply and more safe injection sites. That's a fair debate. And I think those are points that the government is going to have to address. But to say we didn't sell this on the basis that was going to save lives, look, that's it's just not disingenuous. The they yeah. did sell it on that basis. Yeah, that's disingenuous. Uh, I also wanted to get an update on, I know we were getting some uh, kind of pre-election pre, pre announcements, right? The election's not till yeah. October. Uh, what did the BC Greens have to say yesterday? Uh, Sonia Furstenau is switching ridings. So she's represented the Cowichan Valley in the legislature. She uh, lived up and around uh, Shawnigan Lake. Uh, for a time, she led the fight up there, successful to uh, protect uh, basically the lake from a plan to mine a quarry up there. That's the issue that got her elected. Two terms as MLA for Cowichan Valley, and she's moving to Victoria. If she wins, she'll be my MLA here in Victoria Beacon Hill. It's a very bold move, I have to say. I mean, she acknowledged it as much. She said, people tell me I can't win there. It's been an NDP riding almost forever. It's currently represented in the legislature by Cabinet Minister Grace Lohr, who you interviewed this week. Uh, but she's doing it. She says uh, this is uh, where her history is and her base, and she's got one of her children is in UVic, and she wants to be closer So she's running as the green candidate in Victoria Beacon Hill. I think an uphill fight, but she said people have underestimated me before, and they have. Okay, how challenging is this? Like that that particular writing, can you give us a bit of a history? Uh, Yeah, so um, the New Democrats lost the writing in the 2001 election where they were swept away everywhere in British Columbia, except for two ridings in Vancouver. So that's the one where they were absolutely crushed and there was a big vote split with the Greens. But other than that, Victoria Beacon Hill has been NDP territory for decades. Uh, Even when they weren't forming government, they won Victoria Beacon Hill. until she retired at the last election, the MLA was Carol James. For here, Grace Lohr is her successor. She's new to politics, but she's already made it to the cabinet table. So, you know, I think it's an uphill fight, the Greens. Uh, but it is true what what uh, Firstenau said yesterday. The New Democrats pulled out all the stops to defeat Sonia Firstenau in the 2020 election. They sent everybody into her riding to try to beat her and they couldn't do it. So she is a presence and she's a good campaigner and an effective MLA. So it's not hopeless. But it's risky. It's an uphill fight. Yeah, it's risky. Like, why do this? Well, she says it's not because they changed the boundaries of her riding. They they kind of split her riding in two. So uh, electoral Boundaries Commissions do this, and the Electoral Boundaries Commission did a lot of meddling the last time. There are a lot of MLAs that are scratching their heads over why they changed the name of their riding and 
why they moved the boundaries and why they created some of these bizarre seats. The politicians don't get into second-guessing boundary commissions because it's a slippery slope. Uh, Everybody will have an issue they want to change. So they tend to leave it alone. But she's one of the MLAs where they did actually pull the rug out from under her and change her riding. She says that's not why she's, she's switching, but I do think that must have been what opened her mind. And she went, well you know, am I going to stay here or am I going to just go look for a new riding? And she's decided to look for a new riding. Interesting. All right, Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. It's Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Okay, do you know what Metro Vancouver as an organization does? Well, for one thing, they build infrastructure projects for the entire region. And a pretty big one is going to be getting underway in Richmond. It is a $10 billion wastewater plant upgrade that's expected to take 10 years. Now, this is definitely needed, although there are a lot of questions about the cost and how it's being sourced. But there are also some questions about how the construction process is going to unfold. I mean, think about that for a second. Think about all the construction material that you need to make this happen. Well, nearby neighbors have actually thought about it and they're on board with the upgrades, but not so much with the plan for how construction is going to happen. What does that mean? Well, one of those neighbors is going to explain that to us. Dr. Morva Stillwell is with us now, founding member of the Fraser River Community Alliance. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, hi, Sari. Thanks for having me. Now, can you explain to us what what is going on here? What are your concerns with this project? Well, first, if I can just reiterate what you said about this being, first of all, a project we support and a mega project by any measurement. This is going to cost $10 million and take 10 to 15 years to build. I think it's the largest infrastructure project in Vancouver right now. And the, the issue is massive quantities of material need to get to the site. And the current site is at the uh, far western tip of Iona Island. It's right adjacent to the old site. And that's all of the things along the river, most of the things along the river, were not there in 1963. So getting massive quantities of sand, crushed rock and gravel into the site is not uncomplicated. So Metro is proposing to build a barge terminal where, so there will be a terminal at the side of the river and then the barges, these are enormous barges, will pull up and this material of sand, crushed rock and gravel will be moved off the barge with a conveyor belt which will run 13 to 16 hours a day, five to six days a week for 15 years. Then it'll be loaded onto loaders, so there will be continuous noise, dust, and light pollution, as well as increased congestion on the river for 15 years. So that's a lot. Is proposed, <laughs> well, it's actually really hard to contemplate, right? This is not a, oh, there'll be some banging for a couple of years and it'll all be done. No, no, this is really a significant perpetual uh, cause of health concerns and river safety concerns. Now, Metro has three potential sites that they are uh, looking at to put this barge terminal on. And we, we think we have legitimate concerns, and we want to be at the table. So our, our cool... Our, sorry, just to ahead. be clear, I was going to say, the, the reason why it's, it's one of the construction sites, not all three of them, but just one of the construction sites where you feel like a little too close to a residential area. Right. So site, what's, what they call site number one is actually at the western tip, um, closer to the open ocean, already zoned industrial, close to the, the construction site and farther away from uh, all the residential areas. Site three is actually in McDonald's Slough. We don't think it's under real consideration. We think it was just kind of tossed onto the list. Site number two is directly across from Deering Island Park. Now, this is the narrow part of the river. And if you haven't been down here to the park, you you will see on the Richmond side, which is where the project and the barge terminals will go, there's log booms all along the river. So we often have log booms up to almost a mile long being shepherded along the river by three or four tugboats. And 
massive barges, which are stacked stories high with biomass that come by, sometimes one, often in trains of two or three. And we have barges that are loaded with transport trucks, often containing dangerous goods going up the river, as well as a busy recreational boating area. So it's congested. We think it's dangerous. There's already been in 2018 a barge sank with 22,000 liters of diesel fuel. More recently, one of the barges went adrift and um, uh, blocked the river. We've had barges uh, bonking into the landmass. And so we, right. we don't think that that's sensible. So okay. we feel strongly that site number one is the least harmful and best site. What's it been like, though, getting information from Metro <clears throat> Vancouver? What is the engagement like for this process? Okay. Okay, so so our community alliance started out just as a few uh, members or a few neighbors who were hearing about what I've just described, and it's grown into a group of neighbor uh, neighborhoods of people who want to be engaged with Metro, and so they had what they called a public information meeting October fifth. They invited a very small number of people. They haven't informed the public anything substantial about it. We went to that meeting. We have met with the communications person and project manager for for this project who have come down to Deering Island. We have sent innumerable correspondences to Metro, to the chief administrative officer. And really, the past four months, we've gotten next to no new information. So is there a next step in this process or is this, is this an effort now to say, hello, hey, we're here, you got to pay attention? Well, let me tell you what, what we want. For absolutely, this is us saying uh, Metro Council, as you know, is kind of this behemoth that has elected representatives from all the municipalities in the, in the region. Um, one uh, First Nations uh, treaty band and one electoral area. So people are um, paid to attend meetings around these large infrastructure projects. So, so what do we want from them? First of all, we want clarity around the fact base. We want to know what are the facts that they think they are using to make their decision. We want to see their impact studies, which should be completed before any decisions are made. We want transparency. We want to know what are the criteria being used for the decision and how will it be graded so that the right choice is being made. Thirdly, and this I think gets to what you're talking about in particular, is accountability. Who's going to decide? Oh, yeah. At the public... At the public meeting, it, was, it wasn't a typical public meeting where everybody heard the same thing. They had a lot of people walking around telling people things that on our report out, you know, they weren't all the same. So some people said, who's going to decide? And it was reported that the chief administrative officer said he would decide. And we're thinking, no, no, actually, we have City of Vancouver councillors on the regional board, on the liquid waste committee, and on the uh, climate change and air quality control committee. We want our city councillors to demonstrate their interest in advocacy for our interests around the health concerns and river safety concerns. And we want to be confident that the people responsible to us are active and visible on our behalf. And finally, we want engagement. We want a citizen's advisory committee, and we want it now before the decisions are made. Okay. Well, you know what? We're definitely going to put in some requests to Metro Vancouver and see what we can find out as well. But thank you for explaining it to us this morning. Thank you for having me. That's Dr. Moira Stillwell, founding member of the Fraser River Community Alliance. And here are the complications when you're dealing with something huge when Metro Vancouver is involved. Um, As Dr. Stillwell pointed out there, your counselors from whatever community you live in, they all get kind of appointed to this Metro Vancouver board, but they don't have like regular meetings. It's not like a city council meeting that you can go there and the public can engage and they have a chance to speak and these big projects happen. It's difficult to sometimes even find out what all the details are and where the meetings are happening and all of that because it is this kind of different structure, right? And that's what Dr. Stowell was kind of alluding to there. So yeah, when you have neighbors who say, listen, we want this project, don't get us wrong, we like it. 
we just have a few concerns and could you please listen to us about these concerns? They don't, they don't have an outlet to do that. So we'll definitely put in a request to Metro Vancouver. Maybe they can explain this to us and to help explain it to these neighbors too about what exactly is going on and how do they have their say because they do have a right to have their say. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. BC wine is pretty popular, right? Very popular right next door in Alberta, actually. So much so that the industry here relies upon customers in that province, right? But now that relationship is threatened because Alberta is claiming that BC wineries are shipping wine across the provincial border directly to customers and they don't like that. And they say they will cut those wineries off if they keep doing it. Well, is that against the law? Like, what what is going on here? Well, Albert Hudak is a legal representative for the BC wine industry and joins us now. Albert, thank you for being here. Uh, yeah, good morning. Thanks for the invite. So what is allowed here and what is, are BC wineries allowed to ship wine directly to customers in Alberta? Mm-hmm. Yes, they are. And I'm glad that you've given me a chance to explain it, right? Um We'll keep it short, but in, in 2019, the federal government amended its law and totally took away any restrictions on interprovincial shipments of wine. Uh, and Alberta did the same and uh, amended its law to allow imports, but subject to the policies of the AGLC. And the, and the AGLC has taken the, the narrow view that import doesn't mean the what you would think from the ordinary uh, de- uh, dictionary definition of it, uh, import to me includes shipping and bringing across, across the border uh, on your person, right? Uh, and they've interpreted it narrowly to say that uh, Albertans can bring back BC wine on their person, but they can't have it shipped. Okay, so... Can, what what are the repercussions here of them doing this? Like what what, what can the what can the wine industry do about this? Well, this happened before uh, a few years ago when they were concerned. Alberta was concerned about us being too slow in approving the pipelines, and they cut right. off the BC wine industry for a while. And we took them to court, and as soon as we filed the court application, they backed down. They realized they didn't really have the right to do this. So is that what you're going to have to do here? Go to court again? I'm hoping not. I, uh, you know, 48 of the 50 states in the states allow interstate shipments of wine, and they've got simple rules in place to protect the public interest. and And we're hoping to have a discussion with the AGLC uh, that explains to them what other jurisdictions are doing, and if they do the same, there's no damage to the integrity of their market. You know, regulators are old-fashioned, right? And uh, really what they're saying is that they're comfortable with brick and mortar, but they're not comfortable with the Internet. And and so there's a set of rules that are built for brick and mortar. They can determine the size of the floor space in the store and uh, where the doors are and what the hours are. And they just have this unease about the modern reality of Internet shipping. Right? Okay, well, then what brought this about, though, this time around? Uh, we are trying to figure that out. Uh, uh, you know, uh, we, that's a question we have for them. So you uh, haven't heard, of, nothing was, nothing precipitated this that you can think of? There's nothing in the letters that we got, but in the press since then, they've uh, talked about a couple of things. They talk about the integrity of the Alberta liquor market in some vague way, but uh, the specifics they talked about is, that we're avoiding taxing by shipping directly. If we ship through the government warehouse, we pay tax. If we ship directly to the consumer, they don't have a place, a system in place right now for us to remit the tax. But we have been talking to them for a long time and saying, put put a system in place and we will collect and remit the taxes. So that's probably what it comes down to, right? Like how hard is that to do? It, it's not. I mean, Manitoba has done it. Saskatchewan has done it. Like I say, 50, 48 states have done it. Uh, you know, uh, it's not that hard to do. And then the second really red herring is that uh, they're worried about minors uh, getting access to to booze by by 
But who's going to steal their mother's credit card and order a a case of wine? Yeah. A case of wine that shows up it, in a week, right? It does not make uh, sense. Um, but Albert, no, listen, it does not make sense. thank you for explaining it to us this morning. We appreciate that. Okay. And good luck. Okay. We'll okay, be keeping nice an eye on that one. Albert Hudak is a legal representative for the BC wine industry. They're confused. You heard them. They're confused about why Alberta is taking these steps when they feel like it's a very simple fix here if the taxation is the concern. So we'll follow along here. No one's quite sure why Alberta is taking these steps, but uh, we'll follow up on that for sure. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Remember those changes, those very controversial changes that were made to freedom of information rules in BC a few years ago? People said, hey, this is going to result in fewer requests. And then there were so many problems with the system, whether it was the pandemic or you name it. it, it people said it was going to mean long wait times. This isn't good for the system. Well, now, three years later, an extensive report has been completed by the Information and Privacy Commissioner into all of that. And Michael McAvoy joins us now to tell us what he found. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning, Simi. Okay, first of all, what did you look at? Uh, we looked at a couple of things. The first was uh, basically how long it's taking government to uh, respond to access to information requests. Um, the legislation uh, gives citizens in BC a right to their records, and um, the law also obligates the uh, government's public bodies to respond within uh, basically 30 days. Extensions can be granted where those are warranted. And uh, so what we did was we looked and assessed how timely government was in, in making its responses. The other thing we did have a look at as well was uh, some statistics about uh, what volume of requests have been made since the, uh, the government put in place a $10 access to information fee. So those are the two, uh, two basic elements of the report. Okay, and what did you find? Well, on the, uh, on the issue of how rapidly government is responding, uh, what we found is that the average wait times have gone up uh, considerably. Uh, so the benchmark is 30 days within the Act, and uh, the average uh, time to respond now is 85 days, which is the highest number of days uh, since we began collecting statistics 13 years ago. The other statistic that's, I think, important is, you know, what can the public expect? Uh, are they going to get their... Uh, request answered within 30 days about 50 percent of the time the requests were answered within 30 days but uh, you know that compares to a decade ago it was about three quarters of the time so clearly uh, timeliness uh, response time has declined over the last decade the other thing uh, again we mentioned uh, i mentioned that uh, we looked at what happened to uh, uh, volumes after the fee had gone into place and uh, on that front, political parties, media, and individuals, the number of requests that's happened since the fee has been in place has has dropped. And uh, in some cases, you know, there are explanations for why that might be the case. Uh, for example, with political parties, uh, the government, and, and I give them credit for this, they put in proactive disclosures of uh, certain kinds of records. That's diminished the number of requests made by, by opposition parties. But there's much in the number. It has declined so dramatically uh, for political parties and the media since the fee's been in place. Uh, really, it's, I think it's reasonable to uh, assume that that fee has had, a, had an impact on, um, on, uh, on, on numbers of people making requests. Okay, so fewer requests, and yet it's still taking so much longer. This sounds like a broken system. Well, there there are systems that have to be put in place to improve what they're doing, absolutely, and they've taken some measures, but clearly those are not enough. Um, you know, more resources have to be put in place to uh, to give people timely access to records. You know, whether it's, and, and this is, uh, you know, for people in their communities, if they're, uh, you know, wanting to know what's happening with the latest big zoning changes or how COVID was handled or about the water quality and their in their in their areas these are all important issues for people the records that governments hold belong to people subject to certain exceptions and people have a timely right of access i think of the media which is having uh, some challenging times right now and you know we depend on you to bring us the big stories uh, how our tax dollars are being spent for example on a on a big project well uh, that needs to be timely. It's no good if you get a response to uh, your request, you know, uh, uh, half a year or a year from now uh, when the story is no longer timely. So the importance of government being timely and respecting the law, because the law puts in place uh, 
time limits is uh, is absolutely critical, and uh, we think government can do so much better than it's doing now. Okay, how much did the the, the pandemic play into this? Because I saw the numbers, and I see, okay, obviously the Ministry of Health, the lag time there is pretty great, but how much of this was impacted by the pandemic? Some was impacted by the pandemic, and I recognized that almost uh, immediately when things began to happen, and I gave uh, um, essentially a break to all public bodies, particularly those public bodies that were on the front line of having to address issues in the pandemic. Um, That said, those issues are well behind us now, and uh, really uh, there's no no excuse, I think, at this stage for uh, some of the time lags that are happening. And so uh, what I've asked is uh, the minister responsible to uh, to provide our office a plan uh, by the end of March that will set out particularly how they're going to deal with those cases that have been just uh, lingering far too long in the system. Yeah, that's my question. And so if the rules are being violated and, you know, they sounds like they are, what are the consequences for that? Well, the first thing, I mean, we need to do is, of course, shed light on that. Um, in individual cases where there are lengthy delays, uh, our office can make orders uh, to produce those records uh, within a, a period of time. One of the challenges is sometimes applicants don't, uh, you know, have no knowledge, and we actually, it's not brought to our attention directly, where those time limits have been uh, exceeded. And so uh, there are many, many hundreds of those kinds of cases so, again, which I think important for our office is to bring those cases to light and to uh, and to have those discussions and put pressure on government, frankly, to uh, to do a better job. OK, how do you do that? And what has been the government response to your report? Um, well, the government has uh, says they're considering uh, what we've recommended. Um, but clearly, they have taken some steps to uh, to put in place measures which are going to speed things along. But what uh, again, what uh, we would expect, what I would expect by the end of uh, this fiscal year is a concrete plan as to how those numbers are going to be reduced so that uh, all British Columbians can expect uh, much faster um, response times to to their uh, access to records requests. OK, so have they committed to that, that they will get you a response? This will improve? Uh, well, you'll have to speak to government about that. Uh, I know that uh, my staff has been talking to their staff on uh, virtually a daily basis. I know they're considering and going through the recommendations, which they've just received. So uh, my uh, suggestion would be is that you put that question to government. Yeah, we'd love to. They thought this was a good idea, though. Like, it's clear that that $10 fee has really had a detrimental effect, hasn't it? Well, it's interesting because there were hints, you know, with the $10 fee that that would help to uh, make things more timely, that uh, yeah. the kinds of requests that were considered and some people call them nuisance requests or whatever would go away. But that has clearly not been the case. We've now had enough time. We've seen what's happened. And uh, this really speaks to more systemic issues within government uh, having to do a better job. They have a legal responsibility and not just a legal responsibility. This is really an important part of the democratic fabric of our province. Uh, records that belong to all of us uh, are, are things that we have a right of access to, and those are meaningful because they are records about decisions government makes about all of us. How can we hold our governments to account uh, unless we know and can see those records? So it's really vitally important that um, systems are put in place that are going to speed people's access to these records. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you so much for your time this morning. You're welcome, Simi. That's Michael McAvoy, who's the Information and Privacy Commissioner for British Columbia, talking about his report looking into our freedom of information system in this province. And remember when they put the $10 fee in and it was so controversial and, oh boy, did we ever talk about it here on the show? And that was the excuse that the Horgan government gave us at the time was, oh, no, no, this will make it better. We can, um, you know, provide more resources for this. We can actually respond in a more timely manner. Well, none of that has happened. Requests are down uh, by far because of this $10 fee. And at the same time, they are lagging incredibly on a timely response to so many requests there. And so there are some recommendations that have come out of this report, and we'll see what the government has to say about this. But what's going on right now uh, is clearly not a great freedom of information system here in our province. This is Mornings with Simi. A lot of people who are struggling out there, whether it's making that mortgage payment or in a lot of cases making that rent payment. So now the provincial government has announced that they are designating an additional $11 million to BC's rent bank. 
but I, there might be people out there. And I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who go, well, what is the rent bank? Do renters know about this and what do they need to know? Well, Melissa Giles is with us now, the managing director of the BC Rent Bank. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Timmy. Thanks for having me. What is the rent bank? Yeah, RentBank is a resource that's there for low to moderate income renters who are facing a, you know, a short term or temporary crisis. And uh, rent banks provide financial assistance to pay rent or essential utilities. And they're also there to support renters in accessing community resources that are focused on their long term housing stability. Okay, so how do people access this? Do a lot of people know about it? I think the interest and awareness of the program has grown. I mean, thankfully to the investment of the provincial government, both in 2019 and then again yesterday, we've been able to grow the program from seven rent banks to 18 rent banks across the province. So no matter where you live in BC right now, as a renter, you can access this service. Okay, so how does it work? Is it, how do people access it? Who, like, how do you qualify for this? Sure. Um, One of the easiest ways is for people to go online. So they can go to our website, bcrentbank.ca, and look under the locations page. And the reason we direct you there is you can find the contact information of the local rent bank that serves your community. So online is an option. And if you aren't comfortable using computers, you can um, have the phone number and the email address of the rent bank right there. And basically what we're looking for is, you know, there's some easy eligibility. Be a resident of BC you know, prove tenancy and ID and be 19 years and older. But really, a rent bank is an interest-free loan. And so what we need to see is that the renter has the ability to repay that interest-free loan while maintaining their managing their ongoing household expenses. Okay, so it's an interest-free loan, but how long do they have to pay it back? Um, you have up to three years to be able to pay that back. And one of the things about our program is that we're focused on making sure that renters stay housed. So if the renter during the repayment plan goes through another uh, crisis or another disruption in income, you know, the key is to be in touch with the staff member. And there's always ways to look at solutions. Maybe it's about lowering the monthly payment. um, But our goal here is to make sure that people stay housed. And so what kind of demand has the rent, I think it started back in 2019. So how has demand changed during that time? Yeah, rent banks actually began in BC around 2010. Uh, They were all independently run and kind of organized by organizations themselves. So in 2019 is when we um, had this investment by the provincial government. Um, Around that time, we were seeing less than 100 applications come in a month. And um, this, this year, we're averaging close to 500 applications each month. That's a lot more. Okay, so then are you able to do that? Has the demand been so great? Is that why the province is putting in more money? I think that the program has definitely demonstrated its value. Um, When we reach back to renters, we see that a high percentage, a very high percentage of them are still housed. Um, In one of the studies that we did, 61% of those renters said they would have been homeless without the support of the rent bank. Um, so it's it's the investment by the provincial government, as well as we have some great municipal uh, funding support and some um, private donors and others that are really making sure that we have the resources in place to be able to respond to renters in need. Okay, and so what is the goal here then, Melissa? Is it to, I understand it's to keep people housed, but it's not bringing in more supply, right? It's not, is it helping more people or is it just helping people to keep the place that they've got? It's definitely an eviction prevention program. Uh, We know that when renters lose their housing, it ends up costing a lot more, both to them as renters, but also to landlords and ultimately to community. So we know that there's a cost savings when we can prevent evictions and keep people in their housing. I mean, I, I was listening as you led into the story. There's a CMHC report that came out yesterday around the rental uh, costs here in BC. Uh, we know that there's a supply issue. So Ultimately, we would love it that rent banks don't exist, that there's enough affordable housing options and stock on the market. But until that time, this is a great resource for renters. Okay. And so is it, is it um, a long time to get this money? Like how much, how much wait time is there? Yeah, each site is different based on the busyness level. But what we ask our rent banks is to be in touch with people immediately because we know that renters are in crisis uh, when they do contact a rent bank. I can imagine as well that um, this funding announcement and uh, now the media is causing a surge at the rent bank oh, themselves. As yeah. People become aware of it. And it is end of month. 
Um, but really the, the staff there are working as quickly as possible to turn around applications, be in touch with renters and to alleviate that stress. I guess that is a bit of a double-edged sword, isn't it, right? And more people are going to know about it. More people are going to say, I need this. Is, are, is the funding limited? Is there only so much money that can be provided here? There is a limit on the loan. Um, what we do is because we partner with local rent banks, uh, local organizations, one of the benefits of that is they know their rental market. So they're the ones that are setting the allowable uh, loan amount. Um, but we say up to uh, $3,500 is the maximum. Uh, we actually find that people need less than that often in order to be able to um, stay housed. Okay. So is this obviously just one step towards doing that? But I'm just curious to know, like, are there, you've got 18 of these rent banks around the province. Are there certain areas of the province that are worse than others where the need is greater? I think that Metro Vancouver gets a lot of media attention, right? We see Vancouver and Burnaby, some of the highest cities in Canada rent. Kelowna was also in the list. Um, But we hear from people in the Kootenays all the way up to Terrace and Kitimat. And um, what we see across the province is that people are struggling. Uh, Renters uh, have seen increased in housing costs and um, they need this kind of support. Okay, so once again then, Melissa, what is that website? Where can people go for more information? So go to bcrentbank.ca and look under the locations page and make sure that you be in contact with the rent bank that serves your community. All right. Well, thank you for your time. Thanks so much for having me. That's Melissa Giles, Managing Director of the BC Rent Bank. So this is where they will lend you money. It is interest-free. You have three years, up to three years to pay it back. They cap it at $3,500. But essentially, it's to keep people in your rental suite. Maybe you had an injury, maybe something happened, and so you're going to have trouble paying your rent this month. This is a place where you can go to to get some help to get you over that. So it doesn't provide more housing supply. That's been one of the criticisms of it. It's But it's to keep people uh, from being evicted, to keep them in their suite. And that alone is challenging for people these days, right? Just holding on to something, especially if you feel the rent is relatively reasonable or relatively manageable perhaps where you are and then you have a bad month. What do you do? Well, that's what this is for. So in BC, you know, home ownership is what, 60, about 66.5%. We've got a growing renter population too. And that is one of the big challenges they have been facing here. So government providing more money, about $11 million more uh, to the BC Rent Bank. This is Mornings with Simi. Five members of the 2018 Canadian Junior Team have now been criminally charged in a case that has been headlines for years now, quite a few years. And yet there are still so many questions. And I think that's why this case has remained in the headlines for so long. But now that we've even gotten to the point where we have these charges, where we know the names of the players, there are still questions, right? Like, how did we get to this point? Why did it take so long to find out what had happened? What, where did these charges come from? So joining us now to talk more about this whole situation is Dr. Anne Pegararo, who's the Lang Chair in Sport Management at the University of Guelph. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Are you surprised that we even got to this point now where we're talking charges and we know the names of these players? I think so. I think that in, you know, most uh, just in general in sexual assault cases, we usually don't get this far. So uh, I think the extreme public pressure in this one probably is playing a role. But it's uh, I think for many, it's also good to sort of see that we are getting to a point where there is going to be, you know, some sort of a a real investigation in the charges that have come out of it. And now we get to see justice um, sort of move through the system and and some outcome will come down the road. Is that part of the benefit here than for the public and that you're right in a lot of sexual assault cases and allegations we don't get this far and now the pressure is on the system to show that what what you can do yeah and i think that you know high profile cases like this this one um do, uh, do put pressure on the system but i think it's also um you know, it's needed so that, that, you know, regular um, citizens can see that there can be a justice process and and when sexual assault happens, um, reporting it is still the route to go. So I I do think there's positives that come out of it, um, but it will keep this in the news for some time. And what questions do you still have looking at this? I know that Canadian MPs who've been looking into Hockey Canada, they still have a lot of questions. I think we have a lot of questions about sport in our country, period, right? I mean, I think this is the high-profile case that we're seeing in terms of sort of abuse in the system, um, and 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 we've seen that 
the questions in front of Parliament and the parliamentary hearings, but I think we have a lot of questions about how sport in our country has got to this place where we're facing scandal after scandal and what is, what's wrong with the culture or the structure of our sport system that has led us to this point right now. Right. And so those questions in, in an organization, would you say like, like Hockey Canada, um, how do they deal with allegations? And is this a question, do you think, for every sport organization? I think it is. I think, you know, we're we're getting details about what happened in terms of when this situation came to light inside Hockey Canada and how they handled it. And and I think it wasn't, um, you know, I think the general public would agree, not transparent, right? And so I think what we're learning here, and, and hopefully the sports system is learning, is, you know, we need to be more transparent when, when issues like this happen. We have to deal with them. We have to be transparent. We have to uh, be quick. And we, you know, we need to build a system that is less reactive to incidents and is actually more proactive in building um, a better sport environment so we don't have these things happening. Do you think anything has changed in the last three or four years since this story first came to light? Well, <laughs> I guess, you know, I'm guessing not me, given by your reaction. There. Yeah, I mean, the hopeful side of me is I think the light that's being shone on the Canadian sports system now is much needed. I do know that there are, are organizations that are working to make change inside hockey itself, you know, the Hockey Diversity Alliance um, and their work is, is one that's come out. I think Brock McGillis and the work he does around changing the culture in hockey. So I do think there's positives that are coming out of this. Um, and I do think we're going to see some cultural change. It's it's just a long road. Um, I'd, I, I want to remain hopeful that we will see changes in our organizations and changes in the sport um, culture and, and, in, and in sport participation for our kids. How do you think we got here then? Is it because hockey is just so huge and so much about it has been unquestioned until now? I think so. I think Canadians uh, believe that hockey is a part of our culture. I think we've put it on a pedestal. I think to keep it on the pedestal, people that work in a lot of organizations have swept a lot of things under the rug or buried them. And I think, um, you know, in order to to pursue success and to keep Canada as this hockey nation. Um, So I think that hockey fans are probably having a bit of a reckoning right now. And, you know, they're seeing that they want to love this game. Um, They want to support the stars, but they also want it to be better than it has been. So I do think that, that, our love of hockey has played a role in, in where we're seeing this play out now. Or our perceived, you know, uh, love of hockey. Like, we love hockey for sure, but it seems to me the Canadian public responded appropriately to this, whereas the organizations and the people in charge didn't. Yeah, I do think the Canadian public, like, you know, that, that maybe is where hope comes from, is the Canadian public and its response. The organizations, the culture inside these organizations becomes so ingrained. And I think um, if you look at our our, our sport organizations, very few of them are diverse, very few of them have gender uh, representation. So you get a lot of people in rooms that look very much like each other making decisions over and over and the culture becomes ingrained. And I think that really came to light in hockey. You know, most of the people in the room, most of the people on the boards were very much um, men who grew up in the hockey system. There was limited women, limited individuals of color. And so the same culture gets very pervasive if you don't have difference inside the room where the decisions are made. Right. I, I always got the sense with this story is that they forgot what the mission was, right? Was the mission to help build character and great people or was the mission to protect and cover up in the organization? Because that seems like all they ever did was do something that only benefited the organization. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree. I mean, when it comes to light that a nonprofit organization has a, an over $100 million slush fund that they keep in bay to do this, you know, the kind of uh, legal work they need to do behind the scenes, you start to question, yeah, are we really about building the game and building character and building uh, a culture for young hockey players or about protecting the money that we've been able to get into the game? Um, So, yeah, I would agree with you. I think that the wrong focus. In your work, then, have you seen any kind of sport organization that is taking the right steps? I think we're seeing most sport organizations now having a reckoning and starting to make that. I think we're seeing changes. Um, you know, I think we're seeing it in, in different sports. I think, you know, we still have some struggling. I think Canada soccer is struggling still with some change it's undergoing. Um, but I do think we see we see sports that are leading in our, in our country. Um, I think, you know, I do work with Paralympics, and to me, uh, I think they have the right focus in their organization and are, are about making change. Um, I, I think we've been successful in some other sports like tennis, where we haven't seen the same levels of scandals. Um, but we have to remember most of these organizations need to win to get money from the government. Um, so they have to make decisions sometimes that are... Um, not necessarily the right ethical decisions to make to chase money to keep their organizations running. So there's some built-in parts of our system that need to change as well. Right. I wonder, yeah, you're right. If they learn from each other, whether it was Canada Soccer, Hockey Canada, or even Gymnastics Canada. 
Yeah, and I mean, they all meet, they, they all do share. Um, you know, we, we are interested in knowing what, what is behind the organizations that are more prone to scandal versus ones um, that seem to be not. And so that's sort of research we're undertaking now and hopefully we'll get to, to be able to, to some outcomes that we can help support the system and realize, you know, these are the triggers, these are the warning flags you should see early and, and, and change your course before it's too late. Right. Is the, do you think the pressure needs to still be held on Hockey Canada here? I do. I think that um, I think that you know some of the sponsors came back, and and that's a business decision on their part. Some of them stayed away permanently. I think we, as a public, are are the best tool to keep the the pressure on the system to make the change that needs to come, so that Hockey Canada um, and other you know hockey organizations across the country that are a part of it embrace the types of change that need to happen. Embrace the cultural change. Bring in uh, individuals from Hockey Diversity Alliance. Bring in Brock McGillis. Bring in the people who are doing the work at the grassroots level and change the culture in your organization. We'll see what happens. And I assume you'll still be following along. I will be too. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks for having me. That's Dr. Ann Pegararo, who's the Lang Chair in Sport Management at the University of Guelph, talking about the story involving these five hockey players who have now been criminally charged in an alleged sexual assault. These are members of the 2018 Canadian men's junior team. And Hockey Canada did an, did an investigation and has a report, an internal investigation report, on that whole situation, but they have not made that public, right? And then Canadian MPs in their investigation asked Hockey Canada to show us that report. Show us what you did. Show us that you you tried to do something, like some evidence that you knew what was going on or anything. Just justify your actions, essentially. Show us this report. And Hockey Canada wouldn't do it. They said, oh, no, no, no. We don't want to interfere with the police investigation that London police have now undertaken. So you know what? fine. The MPs backed off and said, that's fair. We don't want to do anything to jeopardize the police investigation. But now that that investigation has been turned over to Crown and the charges have been laid, MPs are now reconsidering saying, okay, well, now that's moving along on its own. We want to see your report again. So how will Hockey Canada respond? That is the question. The other question is, will London police give some more details on how they got to this part. Why, when they first had this case come to them years ago, they decided there wasn't enough evidence that, nope, they were going to take a pass. And now they have found enough evidence to charge five players in this case. So they are having a press conference coming up early next week. And of course, we will have coverage of that for you.